I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Kind of feel like you're reading a trial log as you come to the book of Romans because there's definitely a courtroom flavor to the first section of this book. The judge is God. The defendant is mankind, both Jew and Gentile. The prosecutor is Paul. And the charge is that man has forsaken God and turned into a pathway of sin. And in response to the question, how do you plead, the Gentile in chapter 1 is silent. He makes no protest. He offers no defense. The Jew, on the other hand, in chapter 2 says, I'm not guilty. And then he offers his defense, and his defense is, I'm religious. I have God's revelation, and I keep God's rituals. And so in chapter 2, Paul clearly demolishes both of those defenses. He says, how can you boast in the law when you're breaking the law? And how can you rely on rituals when you have no reality? And so as we come to chapter 3, verses 1 to 20, it's time for the climax of the trial. You know that part when you were watching Perry Mason that happened about a quarter till? He would come in and he would give his closing argument. He would sort of wrap it all up and he would sometimes bring in some final proof that would dispel any reasonable doubt. And then we would hear the verdict. That's exactly what we have here. This is Paul's closing argument. We see some final objections in verses 1 to 8. Then we see the summation in verse 9. We have the final proof in verses 10 to 18. And then we hear the verdict in verses 19 and 20. First of all, the final objections. Having had his two major crutches kicked out from under him, the Jewish reader is still not silent. He continues by giving some logical objections. And I might say that these first eight verses are very complex. And so I'm going to try to take it and make it very simple. So I want you to stay with me. The Jew essentially asks three questions, even though I think you'll find as many as seven question marks in these verses. Three questions. Each one builds on the other, and they really work from reasonable to absurd. First question is in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew... Or what is the benefit of circumcision? If, as you say, Paul, Jews and Gentiles are both lost, then what good is it to be a Jew? What, is it, what good is it at age 8 to be circumcised as a sign that you're part of the Jewish nation? Now, this is an important question because Paul is going to answer it in detail. In fact, he's going to give three chapters, chapters 9 to 11, to answer in full this question. Here he just answers it briefly in verse 2. He says the answer is great in every respect. First of all, that they have been entrusted with the oracles of God. It's a great advantage to be a Jew because you have the Word of God. And in the Word of God, you have the promises of God. The promises of restoration. The promises of a kingdom. The promises of the salvation of the nation. Which leads to a second question, and that's in verse 3. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? 
If, as Paul said in chapter 2 and verse 29, the real Jew is one inwardly of the heart by the Spirit, the Jew says, well, none of us measure up. None of us is truly faithful, so doesn't that negate the faithfulness of God? Doesn't that negate the promises of God? And then the answer comes in verse 4. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words and mightest prevail when thou art judged. Paul says, no way. Even if every man is found to be a liar, God will be faithful to his word. And then he quotes here from Psalm 51, 4. You know where this quote comes from? It comes from Psalm 51, where David is confessing to God his sin with Bathsheba. And right in that context, he says that God is faithful. God is just. And so the point is that even though David was unfaithful at times, God remained faithful. And that's God's promise to the Jews as well. Which leads us to a third question, and that comes in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And then in parentheses, he says, I am speaking in human terms. Now, he says I'm speaking in human terms because they've now gone to the absurd. And the question here is, if my unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, if my sin makes God look better, then how could he still be angry at me? How could God be upset about my sin because its darkness makes his righteousness look brighter? And in verse 6 comes the answer. May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? If you say my sin makes God look better so he shouldn't judge my sin, then God can't judge anybody if that's the case. And then he puts the question another way in verse 7 and makes it more personal. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? If my lie makes God's truth look brighter, then why am I getting judged as a sinner? It's kind of like the argument, well, I'm giving God a nice black background against which his glory can shine. So why would God be upset at my sin? And then Paul says in verse 8, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Why don't you just say, let's do evil that good may come. You see, the real argument is the argument of situation ethics today, and that is that the end justifies the means. The end is that God is glorified, therefore the means, my sin, I shouldn't be responsible for. And Paul puts in parentheses that we are often accused of this. And I think what he's, what he's telling us there is that when he preached the gospel that salvation is by faith apart from works, a lot of people would ask the question, well then, what's to keep me from living any way I want to? In fact, I would suggest to you that if you never hear this question, you're not preaching the gospel. Because the gospel is all God's grace 
It's by faith alone, and the natural mind is going to come to this question. They're going to say, well, if that's the way it is, then I ought to be able to live any way I want to. And so that's the question. Paul says it's an absurd question. In fact, he apologizes for it, essentially. And then at the end of verse 8, it's as if we hear the voice of the judge saying, their condemnation is just. You can almost hear the judge saying, objection overruled. Their condemnation is just. And so the objections stop, and we come to the summation in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Paul says, what then? On the basis of what we've covered in chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, 8, where do we stand? What is the conclusion? Are we better than they? Are we the Jews better than they, the Gentiles? Are we the religious better than they, the rebellious? Are we who hide our sin better than they who flaunt their sin? Are we who boast in God better than they who do not honor God? Are we better than they? And Paul says, not at all. Not even a fraction. We have already established that nobody is better than anybody else because all are under sin. Now this is the first time the word sin is used in the book of Romans. And so I want to take a moment and look at this word. What is sin? What does it mean to be a sinner? Well, this is an interesting word. Paul uses it 40 times in the book of Romans, and it's a very descriptive term. It's the Greek word hamartia, and it means literally to miss the mark. It was used of an archer when he would shoot his arrow at a target and he would miss the target. He would say, I've sinned. It was used of a musician when he didn't really perform up to his expectations. He would say, I have sinned. And Paul is using it of all of us to say that we have missed the mark of God's standard, of God's goal, of God's purpose, of God's holiness, of God's glory. You see, that's what sin is. Sin is any deviation from God's will or God's word or God's character. We have all missed the mark. We have all sinned. Now, that's not a very popular word today. Our society would, would prefer to water it down and call it white lies or mistakes or poor judgments or hereditary flaws or if it really gets bad, we say it's a disease or an illness. But you know, if you had a bottle of poison, it wouldn't help you a whole lot to change the name on the label because it's still poison. If you had cancer, it wouldn't help you to go around saying, well, I've got a mild cellular disturbance. The outcome is the same. Sin is sin. And Paul says, Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. Now notice, we are under sin. What does that mean? Well, I think there's two ideas there. Number one, we're under its control. We are under sin's power. We are under sin's rule. Sin is over man. Sin is our master. Sin dominates us. And so we are enslaved by sin. And then secondly, not only are we under its control, we are under its condemnation. We are, are under the condemnation that sin receives. And Paul's going to make that clear in a few chapters in chapter 6 when he says, the wages of sin is death. We're under sin's control and we're under sin's condemnation. And then just in case you think you may be the exception, 
Notice in that verse, Paul uses the word all. That's the summation. That's the wrap-up of what he's been saying in the last two chapters. He says, all men, both Jews and Gentiles, are totally under sin's control and totally under sin's condemnation. Which brings us to point three, the final proof in verses 10 to 18. And here Paul is going to support his charge that all are under sin with some further proof. And this time he turns to the Old Testament scriptures. And in, this, in these verses, he quotes from seven Old Testament passages, six from the Psalms and one from Isaiah. And together they make up a devastating description of mankind. And they stand as Paul's final and conclusive proof that we are all sinners. And I want us to look at this in two sections. The first section is verses 10 to 12, where he lets us know that sin is universal. And he's really proving the word all in verse 9. That is, sin has permeated all of mankind. And then in verses 13 to 18, he tells us that sin is total. And that proves the word under in verse 9. And that is that sin has totally permeated the individual person as well. So first of all, sin is universal in verses 10 to 12. It has totally permeated mankind. And this is taken from Psalm 14, where we see God sitting on his throne, and he's looking down on mankind, and this is his response. Verse 10, there is none righteous. Now, righteousness means the quality of being right. A righteous person is the one who is as he ought to be. A righteous person is the one who conforms in every way to the standards of God. And God looks down and says, there is not one man or woman who is as he ought to be. There is not one man or woman who measures up to the standards of God. That's why it's so exceptional when we hear God speak out of heaven and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Why? Because Jesus was as he ought to be. Jesus was righteous. And if you think you may be the exception to this, just hold yourself up to Jesus Christ. See how you measure up. It's kind of like the lady who thought her whites were white until she held them up to the freshly fallen snow and then she said, my whites have yellowed. When we hold ourselves up to the standard of God, there is none righteous. And then he goes on to say, there is none who understands now, this word is used 26 times in the New Testament. Every time it's used to speak of understanding divine truth, understanding the truth of God. There is no one who understands the truth of God. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 says that not only can the natural man not understand the things of God, it says he cannot understand the things of God because they are spiritually appraised. There are none who understand. And then the next phrase says, there is none who seeks for God. When Adam sinned, what did he do? He fled. And the first question we ever hear God's asking in the, in the Bible is, Adam, where are you? God became the seeker, and he's been the seeker ever since. Why did Jesus come? To be found? No. Jesus tells us why he came in Luke 19.10. He says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We often say, I found the Lord, but the Lord wasn't lost. 
A more accurate way to say that is, the Lord found me. See, I never found in my Bible a parable of the lost shepherd. It's the lost sheep. And here Paul says, there is none who seeks God. And then verse 12, all have turned aside. Turned aside from what? Turned aside from God's path. The Gentile has turned away from the revelation of God in creation. The Jew has turned away from the revelation of God in God's word. Man has willfully abandoned the way of God. Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Now we tend to take comparisons to animals as an insult. We say... You're as stubborn as a mule, or you're as lazy as a dog, or you're pig-headed. You know, it's interesting that earlier in Isaiah, God makes a comparison between us and animals, and he implies that it's an insult to the animals. Isaiah 1-2, God says, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master. The donkey, his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. The ox knows who his master is. The donkey knows who feeds him and where he gets fed. And my people have rebelled. They don't know me, and they've gone their own way. All men have turned from the path of God. And then the next phrase says, they have become useless. Now, this is translated into the Greek. It was originally in the Hebrew. This Greek word means useless. The Hebrew word that it originally comes from is a word that means rotten or spoiled. And the idea here is that we are rotten to the point that we're useless. Before we were married, Mike Smith and I lived together. We rented a house. It was a house that was on blocks. And in any given room, you could drop a marble and it would roll across the floor. We only cooked about once every two weeks, so that, we weren't in the kitchen a whole lot. One day we were in the house and, and something stunk. I mean, it reeked. It was so bad. We went outside and figured some animal had crawled under the house and died. So we looked under the house. We came back in. We looked in the cupboards thinking there was a dead mouse somewhere. Finally, we found the cause. It was in the refrigerator. We had bought some meat that we intended to cook and never cooked, and it was rotten. It was spoiled. That's this word. Now, neither one of us said, you know, maybe if we cook it on high. You see, once something is spoiled, it's useless. You see, that meat was irrevocably bad. And that's what Paul says we are. He says we are rotten and therefore worthless. We are irrevocably bad. There's nothing salvageable in us. We are rotten and useless. And then he says there is none who does good. Now, your grandmother may have told you all your life that you're a good little boy. 
And at your funeral, the preacher may say, she was a good woman. But from God's viewpoint, there is none who does good. Now, that doesn't mean that men never do good. Jesus said in Luke 6.33 that sinners do good things. But the point here is that you can never do enough good to satisfy God. Isaiah 64.6 says, All our good deeds are like filthy rags. From God's vantage point, there is none who does good. Jesus made a similar statement, and if you would for just a moment, flip over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And verse 18 says, And a certain ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to obtain eternal life? Now, here's a guy that comes up to Jesus and says, I want to know what to do to have eternal life. Now, if somebody came up to us, we would say, It's time to pull out the four spiritual laws. It's time to pray the sinner's prayer. Jesus says something that kind of throws us, and the reason he does that is that he knew that this man was not ready yet. And so notice what Jesus says, verse 19. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, I think Jesus understood that this fellow needed to comprehend two things. Number one, he needed to comprehend who Jesus was, and he needed to comprehend who he himself was. So Jesus says, No one is good except God alone. Only God is good, so when you call me good, you're calling me God. Understand who I am. And only God is good, so you're not. Understand who you are. This guy didn't grasp either one of those. He didn't accept the fact that he was not good because he tells us in verse 21, I have kept all the commandments from my youth. I'm good. And he didn't, didn't understand who Jesus was because in verse 23, it tells us that he walked away, holding on to his real God, which was his money. And I think he would have had a similar problem back here in Romans chapter 3 where God looks down and says, there is none who does good. Maybe you've got a problem with that this morning. Maybe you think, well, surely there are exceptions to this. There must be some people who are good. There must be some people who seek for God. And I think Paul anticipated that that would be our response. And that's why when you look at verses 9 to 12, notice the words, all, none, not even one. Verse 9, Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. None who does good. There is not even one. You see, there are no exceptions. Sin is universal. All are under sin. Which brings us to the second division, and that is that sin is total and that is sin has totally permeated the individual man. Man is totally under sin's control. He is totally depraved. Notice verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You know, if there's one place that we dread more than a courtroom, it's a doctor's office. And it's as if, at this point, the great physician takes us into his clinic 
And rather than giving us a physical checkup, he gives us a spiritual checkup. And what's the first thing a doctor asks you when he comes in his office? He says, I want you to open your mouth and stick out your tongue. And that's what God is looking at here. And it's as if God is saying, I don't know how to tell you this, but your throat is an open grave. Your tongue keeps deceiving. Your lips have snake poison under them. And your mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now, that's not a very good prognosis. Our tongues keep lying. Our lips are full of deadly venom. Our mouth overflows with cursing and bitterness. And what's the problem? Our throat is an open grave. Now, what's in an open grave? Something dead. You see, our throat is an open grave, and at the bottom of that open grave is a rotten, corrupt corpse in our heart. And the only way for that deadness to come out is out through our throat and through our mouth. That's exactly what Jesus said. Uh, he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our mouth reveals a lot about how we're doing physically. And in the same way, our mouth reveals a lot about the way we're doing spiritually. See, whenever somebody struggles with understanding or accepting the fact that they're a sinner, I always go to their mouth. I say, do you ever lie, ever gossip, ever curse? You see, that's where it usually shows up. Anybody in here who has never sinned with their speech? Stand up because we'd like to applaud you and then call you a liar. Because that's where it happens. Our heart has death and it comes out through our throat and is expressed through our mouth. And then God moves to the feet in verses 15 to 17. Notice verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. It was seen in the feet of the first baby who ever learned to walk on this earth, Cain. We are swift to shed blood. And today we are following in his footsteps at record pace. And if you need the details, just open the newspaper on any given day. And then he says in verse 16, destruction and misery are in their paths. If you need further details of that, just look in the history books. The old adage is, blessed is the nation who has no history. Because all history is just the annals of strife and war and destruction. And then he adds in verse 17, the path of peace they have not known. We know the way of destruction and misery because that's our way but we don't know the way of peace. And it's evident today we know the way of peace talks, but we don't know the way of peace. Man doesn't know peace with himself, he doesn't know peace with others, and he doesn't know peace with God. And then finally he moves to man's eyes in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's the bottom line. This explains all the rest. This explains why men lie and slander and curse and kill because they fear no consequences. The only fear that man really has is the fear of other men. It's not the fear of God. The thing that guides a man's decision is are people watching. You see, he fears man, but he doesn't fear God. And that's a fundamental problem. It really doesn't matter how you arrive at this either. The rebellious person arrives at it by saying, 
I don't believe there's a God out there. Or if there is a God out there, I believe he's impotent or I really don't care. The religious person arrives at this by saying, God is out there, but I'm okay because I'm better than those people. Or God is out there, but I'm okay because God is too good to punish sin. doesn't matter how you arrive at this. The end result is there's no fear of God before their eyes. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Paul tells us here in Romans chapter 3 that man has no fear of God. And so it's not surprising that his lifestyle is utter foolishness. Murder, misery, deceit, bitterness, conflict, cursing. And so here Paul lays out the proof in verses 10 to 18, and it's overwhelming. Sin is universal, permeating every man, and sin is total, permeating every part of man. Now understand, this is God's view of man. If you want to know about man, don't go to a sociologist, don't go to a philosopher, don't go to an anthropologist. Go to God. God knows man, and this passage shows us man. This passage shows us ourselves, universally and totally sinful. And then we have the verdict in verses 19 and 20. Notice verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Paul says, you Jews boast in the law, claiming that you're protected under it. Well, I just quoted from the law, and rather than confirming you, the law actually condemns you. You are all under sin. And so the result is that every mouth may be closed. Finally, there is silence in the courtroom because the Jewish objections have ceased. They are silent before God. And then we hear the verdict at the end of verse 19. All the world is accountable for God. That word accountable means guilty. All the world is guilty before God. Now, Perry Mason would end at this point. God's just getting started. And we're going to move next week into the good news. But what I like is he doesn't even leave us here because he moves on in verse 20 to give us some more information. You know, whenever I flunked a test in high school or college, it always helped me to know that nobody else passed. That's what Paul tells us in verse 20. Notice what he says. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. You see, he says, nobody has ever measured up to the standard of God. God has never looked down out of heaven and looked at someone and said, my, look at him. Finally, somebody who's righteous. He is not guilty. He is justified. No. Paul says, no flesh, no exceptions. In fact, if you look carefully, Paul actually says, no flesh will be justified in his sight. You see, he's not just saying that nobody has ever passed. He's saying that no one ever will pass because no one can pass because it's impossible. You say, well, if it's impossible to keep the law, then why did God give us the law? Well, he answers that at the end of verse 20. He says, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God gave the law to give us more knowledge about our sin. God gave the law to reveal 
our sin. Now, this is important for you to understand. God didn't give the law so we could show him how righteous we are. God gave the law to show us how sinful we are. You see, the law is like a mirror. At my age, I don't look in a mirror to admire myself. I look in a mirror to find problems. The other day, I found a, about a one-inch-long hair growing out of the tip of my ear. Now, what is this all about? I can't grow hair on top. I'm growing hair on the tip of my ear. You know, I thought about letting it grow and just combing it in. But that... <laughs> the mirror reveals my problems. That's what the law is. The law is a mirror. It shows you that you fall short. It shows you your sin. The other thing about a mirror is the mirror can show me my problem. It can't fix my problem. The, the mirror can show me that my face is dirty. I can't wash my face in the mirror. It just drives me to the soap and water. And that's the way the law is. The law shows me my sin, and it drives me to the Savior. It shows me my need, and it drives me to the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's where Paul's going to go after this first section into the answer of God's salvation for you and me. You know, as we look at this passage this morning, it seems a little dark and dreary and discouraging. But I want to remind you that it's absolutely essential. Because a person will never comprehend the 